Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia. In each episode, I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Taylor Madeline, a PhD student in our Circularity Informatics Lab at the University of Georgia with me. How are you doing today, Taylor? I am wonderful, and I'm really looking forward to our expedition to the Philippines today and to the conversation that we have ahead. Yes, me too. Um, So I just wanted to share a little story here. I was recently at a meeting where our icebreaker was to tell the person next to us something interesting about ourselves without talking. So we could draw or act it out, but could not speak. So I drew and then I airplayed a trumpet. Um, but I re- have really fond uh, memories of, of growing up and playing music, and it's very much still a part of my life today. I actually started piano lessons in, I think, about second grade. Um, and this was in my tiny town of less than 2,000 people in Minnesota. Uh, And I think by about third grade, I remember walking alone about the three blocks to the church where my teacher was able to use the piano to give me lessons. And of course, at the time, there's no cell phones. I guess everyone just trusted I would make it there after (laughs) school. And I always did, luckily. Um, And my mom would just pick me up once my lesson was over and, you know, she could leave her classroom. She was a teacher. And then in fourth grade, I started playing the trumpet. We could pick an instrument to start at school, and I had lessons once a week. Uh, And then I was in band, which was every other day with choir from seventh through twelfth grade. And I was in both concert band and jazz band. In concert band, I actually ended up playing uh, the treble clef baritone, since I knew treble clef from the trumpet, because I think no one else played it, and... We needed a baritone in the band, and so I was the only baritone for much of the time. And I actually really loved playing my own part, but in concert with the band, and I think that's a bit of a metaphor for my life, too. So I wanted to give a shout-out to my band teachers from Pine City, Mr. Cahill and Mr. Bocchgalupi, who were so great and taught me so much. I can still pick up my trumpet today and play it, although I would say my endurance is, is not so great anymore. Uh, But both of my boys actually chose to play the trumpet for their instrument to play in band. Uh, We sort of said they could pick any instrument they wanted, but they had to take band at least for a while. I think my oldest will quit now at ninth grade, uh, but my youngest is is quite the musician. And besides the trumpet, he plays the guitar really well. I have to say that's one instrument I've sort of picked up and, you know, played around on, but I never really learned it. But rumor has it, Taylor, that you know how to play the guitar, and I really want to hear more about that. I I certainly did once upon a time. It actually started with the cello. So I originally was in orchestra when I was younger, but um, carrying the cello back and forth on the bus every day got to be a bit burdensome. And I was absolutely that kid sitting in the back of the bus, taking up a whole extra seat with my giant cello. (laughs) So that was uh, relatively short lived. But I remember my mother telling me later that she was very thankful that I took that up and not the drums because she loved to listen to me practice at home. (laughs) But so I, I rotated it sideways and moved towards guitar when I was a little bit older and I was actually actually a singer and second guitar in an all-girl rock band in high school. I love 
cool. So much. We uh, that was the definitely the era of you know Red Hot Chili Peppers, Foo Fighters, early Green Day. Um, we had just this incredible group of friends, and we would practice at my friend's house, and it was it was a ton of fun. Yeah. I, I it was a ton of fun. So, what was the name of the band? Did oh you my gosh! So we we went we went back and forth. We had many different names. I believe our first one was the Jolly Rogers, oh. um, and then at one point we were Phantasmagoria. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was all over the place, but we we had so, we had so much fun with it. Yeah. I think I think that was the last one that we stuck with was Phantasmagoria. Oh, but that's cool. It was, um, So the close, I have to say, the closest I ever got to being in a rock band was playing an air band. I don't even know if if anyone is listening from the 80s, but this was big. (laughs) So that's when MTV came out and um, really the, you know, basically music videos. And so we would put on the music on the cassette tape and then we would all, you know, air play and air sing to the music. I think we even had like air band contest at school which was which was pretty crazy that's amazing <laughs> um typically ours was an all-girl band too and we we played rick springfield songs <laughs> again it was the 80s so <laughs> today we have a really fun guest um who's staying up really late to join us all the way from southeast asia in the philippines and i know you taylor are about to head out on a research and speaking voyage with your husband i'm wondering if you can share with us some of your travels have really sort of impacted you over the years I was uh, recently on my honeymoon to a very remote island in the Indian Ocean, and I sort of had an impromptu waste cleanup and a little bit of a brand audit with some of the other staff there, just because I couldn't help myself. Um, I was also recently on a beautiful waterfall hike on a Caribbean island, and it was a it was sort of a nationally managed park, and so there were you know managed bins, and I kept lifting up the lids and taking pictures of what was inside, <laughs> much to much to everyone's entertainment and my endless scrutiny. Um, But yeah, I think when you, you know, when you start to see these things, you can't, you can't not see them. And you can't also not see all of the interconnected pieces that lead to it. You know, it's not just how could someone drop this piece of litter on the, on the ground? It's what are the systems that have enabled this to happen? And how do Mm -hmm. we think about solving that upstream um, and in a creative and collaborative way? Mm -hmm. I definitely relate to the peeking in trash cans and recycle bins and taking pictures. That's something I've done since I was young and and uh, before starting my PhD as well and, and have a whole collection of trash can and recycle bin photos from around the world, which hopefully will one day become a coffee table book. <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think it's so important, these travels and these trips and, and learning from each other all around the world. Um, in another episode of the podcast, I talked a bit about working with the State Department in public diplomacy. But outside of those 14 places, my work has taken me to another 15 countries or so where I've gotten to meet incredible people and learn more about uh, materials use, management, and plastic pollution. In 2017, when the State Department work had just ramped up, I was asked to be on a panel at the U.S. ASEAN, which ASEAN is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, Conference on Marine Environmental Issues, which was in Bangkok, Thailand. My panel organizer was our guest today, who's Anna Aposa, founder and executive director of Save Philippine Seas. Anna's much younger than I am, um, but she was so confident and organized in her approach to our panel. I was just just happy that all I had to do was speak and and answer questions. 
Uh, I don't exactly remember how the panel went. I think it went okay, but <laughs> I didn't forget Anna and all the amazing things that I learned that she was doing in the Philippines to reduce plastic pollution and advocate for marine conservation. I kept up with her on social media, and it was even two and a half years later I started working on a USAID-funded project in Manila, and we needed to do a marine debris tracker training, and I immediately thought of her. So she was able to help us organize and hold a training uh, all along with us being virtual, and this was even before COVID. And I had the pleasure of getting to know Anna when we ran our circularity assessment protocol in Metro Manila as, as part of a project that we were working on. And our method of conducting this protocol or the CAP during the pandemic, once it was deemed you know safe for people to go outside and be around each other again, was to work through local implementation partners. So we immediately knew that Anna and her team would be the perfect partner to work with us for the CAP in Manila. And CAP entails of several weeks of field work and a collaboration around data analysis and writing. And it was just such a pleasure to work with Anna and her team. She is just such a breath of fresh air in this space um, and just has the most creative and um, exciting ways of approaching this issue. And mm -hmm. I just I just can't wait to get her thoughts on her podcast today. Yeah. And I would say, although we, we did finish the report and the deliverables for that project, we're still working on a paper for publication uh, on the Manila CAP now. And I believe this will be Anna's first scientific publication. So it's really exciting, I think, for her and her team to be a part of that. So keep an eye out for that paper once it's published. We'll for sure put it in the show notes uh, once it comes out. Coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, I want to welcome Anna to the show. Anna, how are you doing? Hi, thank Hi. you for having me. I, I love listening to the two of you. <laughs> awesome. It's so nice to hear your voice. So uh, my first question is, do you remember when we went in Bangkok? And then uh, from there, I also want you to talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up running your own nonprofit organization. I know there's some twists and turns in your story. And if I recall correctly, it might include lawyers and theater. Yes, yes. So first, how did we meet? So you talked about it a little already. I remember being very nervous for that panel because I was the most junior one and I was like one of the most inexperienced people there. Um, they wanted to bring like young people working in oceans. And I was a moderator for a panel with, with like you. And I, of course, I read your paper and... I knew about the work that the other panelists there did, so I I over prepared, which is what I do when I'm when I'm nervous. <laughs> um, so how did I get into this? Well, if you had asked me twenty years ago what I wanted to be, I would have said like a a Broadway star or a musical theater performer because that's what I spent most of my free time doing. <laughs> but in high school, I also got really good grades. And when you're in a typical Asian family, you're brainwashed to either be a lawyer or a doctor. So I thought I would be either of those, but I didn't become any. Um, so I majored in English studies in college. I was performing professionally. My dad is a lawyer. He's an environmental lawyer and he pioneered environmental law in the Philippines. So I grew up being exposed to a lot of different kinds of environmental issues like illegal logging, illegal fishing, dynamite fishing. So it was just part of my, I don't know, part of our dinner conversations to talk about environmental issues and waste management was always a big part of it also. Um, but 
It wasn't until, so I became a scuba diver because my dad insisted that we should get to know the beauty of the Philippines through its underwater life. And I remember scuba diving and seeing trash underwater. And it was just like, a, like it was so shocking for me. Like I, I was so emotional about it. Like mm-hmm. how did it end? I was like 17. And that's when I started um, volunteering for environmental initiatives and I co-founded Save Philippine Seas like right after I graduated college. Amazing. Yeah. People often have sort of those moments, you know, when they want to conserve an environment where they've seen mm-hmm. something impacting it and and that can be that spark of of motivation. So um but I love I love your twists and turns in your story. <laughs> and Anna, I still owe you a scuba dive together at some point. <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to that. That someday yes! I will, someday I will yes! get out there and we will go yes, scuba diving please. together. <laughs> I also love that that the the Definitely. issues. <laughs> I also love that the issues of waste management and you know the underwater world there were just sort of part of your dinner table conversation. That that really strikes me because yeah. I think you know we we definitely have a sentiment of what we assume as dinner table conversations here in the U.S. And it's, I think it's fascinating to hear what that might be in other places. Um, so I also wanted to let you know that, you know, even if you didn't professionally go into Broadway, you're still a superstar wherever you go. <laughs> and certainly with us. And uh, Absolutely. on that note, I, you. I wanted to ask you about your job title, your church, chief mermaid job title. Mm. So this is, yes. um, I have to say, yes. I decided I wanted to be a professional mermaid when I was very little, and I wish I had stuck with it if I had known that I could actually have it on a business <laughs> card at some point in life. So I, and you use it professionally, and I, I, every time I see it in your email signature, it just brings me joy. So I would love to hear a little bit about the origin story and how you found using that as your job title and any reactions that you may have had to it. Yeah, when so when Save Philippines started, it was really just supposed to be for fun. Like it was a social media campaign that was supposed to be temporary. And one of our volunteers said, we should have business cards so that people can take us seriously. So I thought it would be funny if I put Chief Mermaid because like other organizations have chief executive officers, chief finance officers, and my personality is not like that. So I put <laughs> Chief Mermaid on my business card. And... I remember going to one meeting, I was giving a talk and someone approached me, asked for my business card. And a few days later, I received an invitation from our government, from our Department of Environment and Natural Resources, addressing me in the letter as co-founder and chief mermaid. And I just found it so funny because I was like, oh my God, are they taking me seriously? And then I received a letter from like the office of the president of the Philippines addressing me as, as chief mermaid. And I just found it so ridiculous that people, <laughs> but like fascinated that people yeah. would actually legitimize it. And I remember my friend told me, oh, you know, when you get older, because I started say Philippines, I was 23. And she was like, when you get older, you have to like let go of this title because you have to outgrow it at some point. And I'm already like 12 years in the safe Philippine seas and everyone still calls me Chief Mermaid. <laughs> so I guess I am stuck with this title. Well, I, I personally hope that you never grow out of it or lose it. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, you are the one that legitimized the title. <laughs> Thank you. 
I love it. I love it. And and I also feel like when people meet me, they understand why that's my title. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love your often your you've got tons of play on words. Your website is so fun, so you've really kept that fun feeling throughout, you know, your education campaigns and we can and I just your outreach and we can touch more on that later. Um, but I wanted to to ask you something else about music. So Taylor and I were chatting about music in our lives mm. earlier. Um, and I know y- you've told us, I mean, you have a story about music in your life. You said you were a performer. And I know you, you have also told me that music is a really important part of Filipino culture. So I would love to hear more about yeah. how you incorporate that into your work now and I think I've seen you especially in your your conservation and science communication efforts yeah music is such a big part of, of Filipino culture I I remember one of my friends foreigner friends came to visit and we were going around and, and she told me I feel like Filipinos will die without music and I said that's pretty <laughs> accurate um, so in Save Philippine Seas, like all of our events have playlists. Um, we always start our, whether it's online or offline, we uh, create the mood and we set the tone with music. It just creates a different vibe. And when we have workshops, when we have capacity building programs, we always incorporate music in our games and other experiential teaching methods. I just feel like it adds an element of fun and people are just more relaxed when there's good music. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I know you helped us host a workshop, and and we had yeah. well, you had you had theme music, which I was like, what? This is such a good idea. But also, I think we did play a game of like name that tune or something like that at the start. That I was like, we have government yeah. officials, and you're like, don't worry, Jenna, they really like this and I and they did and everyone did and they were more relaxed so it was kind of yeah. like instead of the yeah. icebreaker you know that I was kind of talking about that I did earlier you you have these music you know games that that people really enjoy yeah exactly I love that so much I've in in some of my previous jobs we've always had you know either partners or offices in the Philippines and I've also always loved when we've gotten together with the staff from those offices because it always involves music and that was always the way that we got to know yeah. each other and the way that we bonded and it's just such a I always thought it was such a beautiful way of doing things it just makes me yeah I love that mm. so I wanted to go back a little bit to the social media side of things because I know that you've become a low waste and, and plastic alternative influencer on social media as well in your own right and I would love to hear from you what role you see social media playing in the changing of consumer systems that we all have to operate in and, you know, the, the world around us. Yeah, social media, this is a great question. Social media is, is like a space for learning. So the Philippines is a particularly interesting case study because we've been called the social media capital of the world because mm-hmm. Filipinos spend more time online than any other like nationality, which... I don't know what that says about us, but it has the power to change people's minds. And I've seen this. I've seen how people get so passionate about a topic. It We use it to share information, provide alternatives. But now I'm, I'm so cautious of, of not creating an echo chamber or like making sure that I'm not in an echo chamber also because of the algorithms mm. um, that these social media platforms have. 
And now a lot of the material is produced. And I've seen how the headlines have changed. Like a lot of it now is so clickbaity. Mm. Like they really have sensationalized headlines and materials just for the clicks to make money. So I try to be very conscious of that. And the materials that we create for, for say, Philippine Seas, they're always, and we're so particular about being science-based. And even if we don't get like as many likes or as many shares, we always say that we want to create something that we're proud of and that, you know, when we look back five years from now, is that something that we will like, you know, stand on still? So we have to be very aware of that also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important and, and really admire your integrity in that space and sticking by the science versus the, you know, can we get as many clicks as possible? Um, and so sp continuing on this line, um, I know, yeah, again, besides, say, Philippine Seas, you've got, you know, some personal things that you share. Um, so what are some of your favorite tips and sustainable things or actions that you've recommended or that have, you know, resonated on social media, you think, where you've had an impact where people have, you know, changed based upon what they've seen? One tip that I always share is to use what you already have. I feel like sometimes the zero waste movement also promotes consumerism, like buy this newest whatever tumbler or buy this cool tote bag. And I totally get it. Like I I personally have a tumbler and reusable cup problem. Like like you need to <laughs> have an intervention for me at how many <laughs> reusable cups I have. But I really try to like ask myself if I need this and if I already have it, um, can I give away what I have to someone who will appreciate it? Um, so one is to use what you already have. And another mantra that I always share, and I end a lot of my talks on waste management this way, I always say like aim for progress, not perfection. Mm. And it sounds like a cliche, but especially in zero waste, we get intimidated how large the problem of waste is. So sometimes people are like, well, if I can't do it perfectly, then I might as well not try. Like if I can't segregate the waste 100% of the time, what's the point? But it has to be a day-to-day -day decision. Like it has to be a day-to-day -day choice. And if you quote unquote fail today, like for example, the other day I forgot my reusable cup. So I had to buy something in a disposable cup. And I was forgiving myself for it because i think if if we're so uh, if we're so adamant on being perfect we're not going to get anywhere mm -hmm. i 100 percent agree and i i share that same sentiment and say you know people beat themselves up for like you know trying to do this and then they'll forget the cup mm -hmm. or the bottle one time and then they'll say oh i can't do it you know and i'm like no think of all yeah. the times you remembered it so every other time that you remembered mm -hmm. it you had that offset right and and it's okay you forgot it one time and you you know you're thirsty and you have to have something to drink it's okay you can buy something yeah. you know every once in a while and then you know the more you practice the better it gets but I uh, agree with that sentiment and, mm. and more people could feel empowered to change if they knew that didn't have to be perfect, you know, right from the get go. So um, 
I wanted to pivot a little bit more towards um, how Save Philippine Seas started. So you started this work at a pretty young age and, you know, started founding and leading your own nonprofit, which I'm sure was not an easy task. So I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what was what was surprising or potentially challenging about starting that? And also, what advice would you give other women that want to get into the space of marine conservation and related work? Uh, this... <laughs> So we're turning 12 this year, and I always think back on what I would tell like 23-year-old Anna, <laughs> and I would tell her first, like, you don't need to be an expert to start. And for a long time, I was very insecure about, I, I didn't have a science background. I was an English major. I was a musical theater performer, and a lot of people questioned my credibility, and they were right, too. But I think... It was also an advantage for me not to know so much because I was more curious, I was more open, I was less judgy. I I didn't have an idea of what was the right way to do things. So I was just leading with my heart and like listening to people. And if I and maybe if I knew how difficult this would be, I don't know if I would have pursued it. <laughs> Just like <laughs> fundraising and meeting all kinds of stakeholders. And it, yeah, so I feel like that was that was a good thing that I, I had a different background and that I was leading with intuition. Mm-hmm. And then if I were to think about advice also, there's a different kind of pressure on female leaders. And I don't know. I feel like there's a pressure for us to dim our light sometimes so that other people can shine. And I remember someone telling me before, this was like a grandmother telling me, you know, you shouldn't be too ambitious. Like you're you're such an achiever. You shouldn't be too ambitious because men won't be attracted to you. And I mm. and I was thinking, and I said this, and I said, Well, you know, if if someone doesn't find my ambition and my passion attractive, then they're they're not for me. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of kind of feedback that we get all the time. So it's so important to surround yourself with people who celebrate your wins. And it's also important for us to, like when other people shine, we also shine and we have to let other people shine as well. So make sure that the people that you surround yourself with are like going to be honest with you and will like celebrate you and encourage you and be your cheerleader and be the same person for others. I love that so much. So wonderful. (laughs) So accurate. And I think being your authentic self is, you know, sort of the ultimate. Um, Somebody recently asked me for some advice and that I was just kind of saying, you know, being true to yourself, like you're saying, not you know, if if someone doesn't like me in the way I'm in this ambition and this passion that I have, then, you know, they're not for me. Because ultimately, you know, mm. yourself is who you have, uh, you know. And so I think mm. that's, that's really important and really appreciate you sharing that. So mm. um, I want to dig a little bit more into our most recent work together. Uh, I think it'd be fun to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So... Can you tell us what it kind of felt like for you to to implement the circularity assessment protocol in Metro Manila? Um, I know it was during COVID times and, you know, so you, you maybe mm-hmm. there's stories about that. But was there 
anything that surprised you or stood out to you as you were, you know, doing the field work and, and working with us on that? Yeah, I can say this now because it's it's done, but I was so scared. I was so intimidated. And and I always tell you this, that I'm not a scientist or like not in the way that you do are. Like I don't look at like plastics in the microscope. I don't do I don't know how to do graphs. Like I get palpitations when I use like statistics. <laughs> so I was very scared. Like when I did my master's. And we had to learn R and do stats. Like I was like literally in tears. Anyway, so so I was very scared, but I was also I, I got motivated to over prepare. So we and, and of course it was intimidating to be working with with you and like your lab whose work has affected like policies and work all over the world. And so we were so over prepared. Like we had contingency plans for different scenarios. Like okay, if like we don't upload the data, then we have to handwrite like everything. You have to back up everything. Blah blah blah. And it was also in early 2021 and, and we still had so many restrictions. So mm-hmm. that was also the added fear. Um, but the activity that surprised me the most was the one where we had to trace where the plastics were being produced mm-hmm. because it showed us, which which I didn't know, that um, a lot of it was locally produced. So we had to like look at the manufacturers. And the lesson there is that if the source is local, then the solutions are also local. But on a personal level, uh, after being isolated for for so long in 2020, which was very hard for an extrovert like me, it was really just energizing to be with my team and do fieldwork again. So in in my language, in, in Filipino, one of the words we use for work or job is hanap buhay. And it literally translates to like hanap, is to look for or search and buhay is life. So the translation is like, work is something that should bring you life. It's like seeking what brings you life. And to me, it was work that like brought me life again. And it it like made me emotional in a good way. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I was just going to add that unless you're a statistician, statistics give everyone heart palpitations. I, I was going to so. say the exact same thing. <laughs> so. I, I literally I w- was going to say the exact same thing that Anna, I too get palpitations when I have to deal with R or statistics. You are there is there's no singular definition of what a scientist is by any means. Yeah, and that's completely normal. And we also <laughs> get nervous with those things. And you're you're you know, I've been working on the paper. We've been working on the paper, but looking back at your spreadsheets I was like there's so much detail and Mm -hmm. information here you I mean you knocked it out of the park in terms of doing the work I I think you already knew that but I just wanted to reiterate that so um yeah you're over preparing I tend to do that too though so I completely understand (laughs) so Anna I'd love to ask you about the collaborative workshop that we ran after we did the fieldwork portion of the cap and, you know, I'd love mm. to hear your thoughts about what stood out from you in terms of some of the problem narratives that came out of that, some of the ideas and success stories and, you know, the participants that were involved in that. I'd love to get your reflections on that workshop and, you know, bringing that data and those conversations to the stakeholders in Metro Manila. What I loved about about CAP was being able to talk to different people. And I think that to me is my strength. Like, I, I just love listening and I love asking questions and what my takeaway 
for the workshop was was learning the value of plastics to different people. Like someone campaigning to ban plastics versus a waste picker whose livelihoods is affected by the quantity of single-use plastics versus a local government official who has to develop an ordinance on plastics. Mm-hmm. Like it's like plastic is a currency that just means different things to different people. And it made me more empathetic to the different perspectives. And it also reinforced the idea that I had that all of us have a similar goal. So whether you're working for a multinational corporation or an NGO or local government, we all don't want to live in a Philippines where the sea is full of plastic. That is clear. Mm-hmm. The way we get there is, is the debatable part. And who we're going to work with to get there is where the questions, is where the tension tends to happen. So I see my role as someone who's like a dot connector in that space. Mm-hmm. That's so important. And I, I think that's a, a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the in the cap, you know, after writing the report, um, after the workshop, there were quite a few opportunities identified, opportunities for systems change, um, ideas about reuse systems. I know there were some potential policy obstacles to reuse systems. I'm I'm curious if you have seen changes there on the ground, um, you know, not necessarily directly tied to the cap, but just, you know, with your work and kind of what's happening there. Um, and if not, what do you think, you know, why do you think that is, I guess, and, and what still needs to happen for some of those changes to occur? For the cities that we worked in, I'm not aware of any major changes, but the biggest headline for plastics in the last year was the passing of the Extended Producer Responsibility Act um, in the Philippines, which puts more accountability on the business sector. And the implementing rules and regulations of that act were just passed in January. So it's it's er- it's too early to say what that policy, like what kind of impact it will have. And I'm cautiously optimistic that it's a step in the right direction. But for, say, Philippine Seas, the learnings and the lessons that we we had um, from CAP helped us develop. So we were hired um, a year later to work on like policy papers, like white papers on um, behavior change in, in waste management and infrastructure gaps and extended producer responsibility. And I was hired as a consultant for an investment firm to advise them on where they should be putting their money in the Philippines in terms of waste management. So that depth of knowledge that we got from CAP definitely helped us like sharpen how we we look at the data, where the plastic is coming from, um, and how we communicate it to different stakeholders. That's amazing. Yeah. And and I know that those were some of the threads that came out of the workshop as well when they were, you know, when people kind of identified mm. the problem stories and then came up with the alternative narratives. So 
On that note, you just you mentioned a little bit of what's coming up for Save Philippine Seas and what you've been working on. But I'd, I'd love to know from you, um, what's next or what are you excited about? Or is there anything that you can share um, related to Save Philippine Seas or, you know, your own social media work or otherwise that you're working on in, in Metro Manila? Um, what's next for you? This year is, well, I was going to say, this year is exciting, but every year is exciting. <laughs> um, so we are working on a project for climate change education, working um, with the Department of Education and UNICEF Philippines, like training public school teachers on climate change education. Um, we also have a lot of like communications work. We are working with a multinational corporation to release a series of animated videos on waste management, um, which uses like local language and local references. Um, and also more regional work for me working in in countries in Southeast Asia on their waste management and plastic, like marine debris issues. So never a dull day. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm excited, especially this year because like we are able to do in-person events again and we're able to travel again. So it's it's going to be exciting. Mm -hmm. That's great. I cannot wait to see those animated videos. <laughs> and I think that's going to be just, again, is so exemplary of how you bring some really unique perspectives and skills and just ways of outreach to the space. I'm I'm very excited for all of the things that you have ahead. Yeah. And this is the kind of the first year that feels a little bit normal since 2019. So for our, our final thought here, part of the reason we bring guests in is to hear different perspectives. And we know that systems will only change in a just and equitable way if we have representative perspectives and voices at the table. So we ask a similar question to each of our guests. In terms of plastic pollution and marine conservation for you, what voice would you say is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And as a second part to this question, how do we make that happen? This this question is hard because I feel like there are so many underrepresented voices. But in the waste management space, I would have to say the waste pickers, especially the informal waste pickers in the Philippines. And I say this as someone who doesn't work with waste pickers. I feel like it's not our space. I mean, because say Philippines, we already have certain stakeholders that we focus on. Um, there are already organizations that work closely with waste pickers, but I would like to see them have bigger platforms. So, for example, speak at a Senate hearing or speak at those multi-stakeholder forums and see their role in the projects of the governments and the multinational corporations. Like, how do we support them and make sure that they have a livelihood? Even as these policies and regulations for waste manager being rolled out, I also hope that they have a better quality of life in terms of just like healthcare um, and, and how they handle wastes and how it affects their, their well-being and, and the kind of environment that they live in. So that, that would be the dream. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important uh, that's a really important stakeholder to to be more at the table. And 
I have sort of a follow-up question um, with you. You said you're working more regionally now in Southeast Asia. Do you think the perspective of of people globally from Southeast Asia is represented enough at, at many of the global conversations, or do you think that needs to be amplified or elevated as well? Southeast Asia has had a lot of attention on, on marine plastic pollution. It was... I mean, the paper that you published was like a big like takeoff point or like it inspired this like regional conversation of plastic pollution here. So definitely there's a lot of funding, there's a lot of attention, there are a lot of eyes on um in, in this region. So we have to keep focusing on that. But I think the other interesting perspective also is recently ocean conservancy came out with like a statement saying that their um their assessment of waste was biased because it didn't take into consideration how like other countries were sending us their waste sending their waste to this side so that kind of like conversation on on justice and the representation in that aspect needs to be like fleshed out a bit more. I think we're only starting to see that kind of conversation happening. So I want to see more of that and more people speaking about like the different methods that we're using because it's like every paper that comes out always highlights Southeast Asia as like a biggest a contributor. And I don't argue with that, but it's also like how do we then or, or do we even create like a standard method so that it's like equal i don't know but those yeah. are good questions and big questions to ask they are and and yeah the the stemming the tide report uh from ocean conservancy was basically retracted mm. and i have to say from mm. my perspective the mm -hmm. the focus on the blame of southeast asia was never an intention of you know our paper the the data was sort yes, of free definitely. and put yeah. out and that was you know people taking that and and framing it but um so so thank you for for bringing that up yeah and i think mm. i think anna you bring up some fantastic points especially about sort of more formally recognizing and incorporating the perspectives and voices of the informal waste sector i think that that's something that we see mm. plays you know a tremendous role in waste management and litter prevention and all of these important pieces throughout South and Southeast Asia and is is something that I think does not get recognized enough and is certainly not incorporated into some of those larger conversations. Mm -hmm. I, I love your recommendation of potentially, you know, having a group like that speak at a Senate meeting or sort of have a platform where they can share their perspectives mm -hmm. and not not get overshadowed in some of the, you know, potential policy progress that's being made. Um, and I also think that it's something that Western methods of waste management and collection can actually learn a lot from. Um, and I think that I think you mm. make such a great point about, you know, the plastic trade is often overlooked and some of those inputs are are not taken into consideration. And I think that 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 perspective is is something that certainly needs to change and that, you know, that that's coming from other places around the world. And sometimes the the burden of what happens at the end of life of a product is not where it was actually disposed of um, and it manifests in different ways. And mm -hmm. I just really appreciate your, your perspective and your, your input on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anna, thank you so much for staying up late. 
to talk with us. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your perspective. It's inspiring to hear from you. It's been such an honor working with you over the years. We will post links to Save Philippine Seas, uh, Anna, your social media in the show notes and our paper when it finally comes out. We look forward to following you and all your future projects. And to all our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the Aqua Thread. <laughs>